And welcome to another episode of a podcast, but evil. I'm Dan Oster. I'm Doug Leaf. And today is our very special episode of a podcast, but evil. In the past, we've talked about a lot of fun evil like Freddy Krueger and Dracula. And today we're talking about the greatest evil of all, even if it's a lot less fun. And that is the evil of systemic racism. With the national dialogue going on right now uh, and the Black Lives Matter movement gaining all this momentum across the world, uh, we really felt like it was on everybody, including us, to address it in a way that made sense. And as a podcast about evil, we felt this very particular responsibility. Doug, how are you doing over there? Uh, I'm doing good. I just want to um, second everything you just said. You know, we did we, we've touched on racism here and there as it's affected people we've uh, we've covered or actually as you're listening to this about to cover um we we did an episode on Idi Amin for example and we touched on things like ethnic cleansing but we've never really tackled a a subject like this usually we focus on uh, an individual person and this seemed too important not to talk about and too big not to talk about but Dan, I think we should probably introduce our guest because otherwise... Uh, I think we should. Now, fortunately, yeah. Doug and I are not going to be doing it alone because nobody wants to hear us fumble around on this issue. But we are with a guest I'm very excited to introduce. He's an old friend of mine. I met him at Boom Chicago in Amsterdam. Uh, he produced, starred, and wrote the horror comedy Page One. You might have seen him on Late Night with Seth Meyers. He's been on that a whole bunch. Or Freestyle Love Supreme on Broadway, which will be returning. He's also, if you want to hear him right now, he's on the Audible original Escape from Virtual Island and the Eliza Schlesinger sketch show on Netflix and his own podcast, Brothers from Another Planet. Please welcome to the podcast, Tarek Davis. Hey, what's up, Yay. buddy? Hey. Oh, man. Uh, I can't believe how nervous I am, Tarek. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, it's good to see you. Uh, and nice to meet you, Doug. Uh, thanks for having me. This is great. Likewise. It's it's really good to have you here because otherwise this, it was like, well, we could just talk about systemic racism as us two well-meaning but nonetheless very white people. Or we could record ourselves just eating a bowl of mayonnaise with a spoon, <laughs> which would be about okay. the same. The ASMR community would love that. <laughs> right. So um, we really appreciate you coming uh, on the show with us to to talk about this issue. Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. Uh, I wish, yeah, uh, you guys already did a show about Dracula. I had a kind of a chain that was going to end with Dracula to Kylo Ren, but more than that, we could talk about that later. <laughs> well, I, I promise, Eric, we will bring you back on when it's not to about racism. To talk about racism. something fun, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but not that uh, yeah, systemic I, racism can't be fun. Oh I mean, yeah, it's sure, absolutely fun, and you can find it in pop culture. That's the well, thing about that's it. That's actually it's, the interesting thing about this, Derek, because the thing that you know we have in common, of course, all three of us, is that we're in comedy, and right. so I'm excited to talk about this subject as somebody who's not just a friend, but I have that link with. In the same way, like when I talk to Lauren Flans about queer issues, you know, like we're right. comedians, and so you uh, know, Miss Lauren, she's so great. Uh, yeah, no, she's she's doing fantastic. You know, she's got her podcast coming out with Lauren and Nicole. Yeah, they're doing the kicking ass, man. They're great. Yeah. And so um, it's I always like talking about that stuff with her because I feel like we have that common bond that is it's it's its own secret society. Right. Um, and I don't know. I just I feel on the one hand, I feel very comfortable being with you and in that space. And then on the other hand, it's such a big topic that I feel myself getting kind of nervous. Yeah. Yeah. There's no need to be. I mean, it's is this is the work. You know, I get excited. You know, I, I mentioned Dracula. I'm being 
in all seriousness, uh, you know, I think another link that you and I have, Dan, and I'm sure Doug has, we're all fans of media and pop culture. Definitely. And for me, as a black man of 41 years of age growing up in this country, one of the things that has helped me deal with, I, I, I talk in terms of monsters and beasts and myth. That has helped me deal with identify and relate experiences to racism um, and white supremacy specifically by viewing it through the prism of, all right, well, if I were like a kind of a uh, an Abraham Van Helsing, if you will, right? <laughs> and I had to figure out like, what is this thing that is killing my people and ailing us? And how do we protect ourselves? And how do we put an end to this? Right. I use I use kind of that language. I use, um, you know, I, I can't stop but to think of like the irony of like watching the Hammer films as a kid and seeing all these old white professorly kind of guys like pull out <laughs> the crucifix. Right. That keeps the monster at bay. And then I'm seeing and I'm inundated with video after video. And I always have my phone on me of people like Mr. Cooper in Central Park and filming, whether it be police or just white people who will encroach on your space and be like, what are you doing here? And you have to pull out your phone like it was a crucifix to keep them at bay. Mm, interesting. To yeah. film them, to put a mirror to them like, you know, you would something that is trying to end your life. Uh, so I use those analogies quite often. And that's kind of I bounce back and forth. I think pop culture, I think media is essential to helping all of us because it also helps perpetrate a lot of these like there are bad myths out there. There's a bad myth of the big black black man, black woman, black trans, black non-binary. There is a myth out there that is getting us killed. And that myth isn't just perpetuated by person to person. We see these myths, the bad ones and the good ones in the media. So that's what I meant to say. No, I think that's a very astute observation. And I, I think that speaks to the power of media to perpetuate a myth. And I think there's an also on the opposite end, a really powerful way in which media can help go in the other direction. I, I think about a guy like Mel Brooks and his first movie is the producers. And, you know, like, what do you do to take the Nazis down a peg? Well, you make them ridiculous. You completely take the Absolutely. piss out of them. And then you look at say blazing saddles, a couple of movies later and you can say, well, gee, this movie has a lot of stereotypes in it, but by the same token, what he's doing is saying, no, 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 the the minority is the smartest guy in the room, and it's the racists who all end up looking stupid. Well, what he's doing in conjunction with Richard Pryor, who was the co-writer in that film, and Richard Pryor, like Mel Brooks didn't want to put a lot of the harsh language, a lot of the, the numerous times that the N-word is dropped. Mel Brooks didn't want to put that in. It was... And Richard Pryor's insistence of like, no, 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 no. Truth and comedy. Like, this is how these guys were talking back then. This is how they were talking in proximity to black people. And it's going to fuel the comedy. And it does. Right. And it's and, because Cleavon yeah. Little is never the butt of the joke. It's always the other guy. It's the guy using that yeah. word who looks stupid. Yeah. Well, and, Cle know. and Cleavon Little is kind of our Bugs Bunny, if you will. Um, he's looking at the camera, breaking the fourth wall like, can you believe this racist? And he's talking to 1970s America, right? It's revolutionary. Well, this is why comedy is so important in the face of unimaginable horror, because in my experiences in the last year dealing with like 
chronic pain in my central nervous system, I've been learning a lot about safety and the need for people to feel safe. And when do you feel safe? When you're laughing, you really can't feel safer than when you're laughing. And if you feel unsafe, you're not going to laugh, you know, unless it's right. like some weird nervous tick that's going on. And so I can really see like the power of that, uh, not just the power of, of myth and story to help you conceive of evil, but also the power of laughter and mockery to take the fear away, to show you that it is surmountable, that we that the human heart is powerful enough to overcome this stuff. Oh, absolutely. Um like it's definitely been, you know, I like to say sometimes that I made at a very early age a conscious decision to weaponize joy and weaponize play and weaponize humor, knowing like that was going to be my tool to disarm and to arm myself at the same time and disarm others. And it also makes me realize that the other thing that you and I have in common, and Doug too, is that we are, because we are nerds, you know, our way of seeing the world is through this lens. And we we do gravitate towards these stories about, you know, larger than life heroes uh, standing up against evil. I, I, yeah, it's just something that attracts us in terms of our, I, and this is the thing, it's like people see these dividing lines and yeah, these experiences that we're all having are different. And I have to accept that. Like that's part of my education is saying mm-hmm. that like, it doesn't matter how connected I feel to you. Our experiences of the world are different because of our race on so, at least on, on some levels. And yet I feel this kinship as somebody who is a person of goodwill and who believes in, you know, truth and justice and these kinds of things. Like that's the world that we want to live in ultimately, but we have to pass through a difficult transitional period to get to that place where we all just go like, yeah, like that's how we are. That's how we see each other because we've lived in this horrible other existence for so fucking long. Yeah, no, that's a good segue into, yes, I believe in truth. But me and you are big also, I think we should, we're big Superman fans. Uh, <laughs> I was dancing around. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which, and I don't believe that myth comes out of a vacuum. It comes out of Siegel and Susher, both Jewish men from Cleveland, right? Like it's an immigration tale, but it's also the thing, I think why it's so resonant for so many people from all walks of life, different identities is this idea of like truth and justice. Like, you know, I think of, here's a weird connection or bridge that my brain's going to try to make. But I think of before he was assassinated, when Dr. Martin Luther King talks about his Christian religion, I am not a Christian. I don't really have any particular dogmatic faith, but I admire for Dr. Martin Luther King's, uh, when he would explain his Christian religion was truly based in the philosophy of love, right? That's what it rooted in for him. That explained his, the way he walked through life. That was his mountain. Uh, if anything was the antithesis of love, like segregation, Jim Crow laws, police brutality, economic uh, disparity, which is where he was definitely going right when he was assassinated. Those things are counter to love to this day. And so as a Christian in his set in mindset, well, I have to stand against that and speak it out. Superman is this uncompromisingly good character. And when you talk about like, our common thread. And I think it goes beyond us for human beings of goodwill. If we are truly of goodwill and good character, then we have to be uncompromising in that goodwill and character. And so when we see injustice in any regard, we have to call it out and stand up to it. When you see a monster of any stripe, you have to identify and call out said monster. So yeah, I I really believe like 
characters like Superman and media, they are flagpoles for us on the mountain that we all walk on if we are men or women or non-binary of goodwill. You know, at the risk of talking about the white experience, you know, what's interesting to me is, you know, these monsters on the outside, that's all well and good, right? It's, it's always easy to see the monsters on the outside, but it's the monsters within that are the hardest to face and to deal with. But on the other side of that is such relief. You know, when you finally acknowledge it, when you find when you stop running from it and you stop yeah. trying to cram it down. And so that's also been a part of my journey as well as like looking at, at sitting with discomfort. We hear a lot about that, you know, like white fragility and discomfort. And there's a real strong push against that because you just don't want to look at it. You don't want to accept it. So what do you have? You get defensive. You start pointing fingers. You start saying, well, what about this? And what about that? Right. And so while the monster on the outside is easy to see and fun to talk about, you know, it's it's less fun to talk about the areas of yourself that you've been blind to, but I would say, and I, you know, you never, and you're never done doing it. That's another thing. And it's like, when you say that to somebody, they get frustrated. They go like, you know, oh, I'm just never gonna, I can never arrive. Well, if you think about it as just improvement, you know, being a better human being, suddenly it makes sense. Of course, everyone can accept that. Like you never arrive at being a perfect person. So I want to face that more. I think that's incumbent upon me and people like me, you know, white males, straight white males, you know, to look at those areas where you're defensive. Look at those areas where you're the moment we start getting a little bit uncomfortable, you don't want to do it anymore. You right. know, so I don't know. I'm, I'd, I'd like to be better at that. There's another kind of uh, part of that, too, which is this logical fallacy that the white majority tends to fall back on, which is if, if we don't like the message, we want to kill the messenger. And so, for example, this happened with Colin Kaepernick, right? He's going to take a knee. He's going to protest. And immediately the, the, the response is, this guy is not only is he just a whiner and a complainer, he's not whining and complaining the appropriate way. And we get into a national dialogue back then about is he protesting correctly? Is this guy even a true patriot? Is he a true American? And lost in that discussion was the thing he was actually trying to bring attention to. And look right. where we are now. But I think that happens a lot where it's like we, we, you know, we immediately go to this person is complaining, they're whining, that you know, they're not to be taken seriously. And I think so much more progress could be made if people could sit down and go, yeah, but what if he's not just whining? What if he's got a real legitimate problem? And then let's go attack that problem. It just seems so easy to just take that alternate route. And as a society, we seem to do it over and over again. Right. Well, I think we do it over and over again because we don't. So I want to take what you just said and try to tie it back to Dan talking about the monster in ourselves, which is very real. And we all have a part of this monster It's because we're born on this mountain or in this matrix I like to look at. And for me, like if I use the analogy of mountain climbing, the higher we get to the peak, the more baggage we have to lose or we don't move. We don't go forward. We don't go up. The air gets thinner. It gets more difficult. We got to lose more baggage. And those baggage are the things that like we brought with us that we came with. And for me personally, the baggage was I'm a cisgendered straight. Like there are privileges I have. Able-bodied black man. Now, being a black man is a huge disadvantage, but I still have these other advantages. If I only focus on the fact that I'm a black man and my personal goal, and I don't think about the other people that I got to bring up the mountain with me, then I don't notice how many people, how many boulders I'm sending down, how many people I'm hurting, because I got all this clunky, wide, unnecessary baggage. 
And it is work to break yourself from that baggage. And part of that work is identifying where did this stuff even come from? Taking it off. Where did these philosophies come from? How many times have I actually been up this mountain? How many times have I been in the same spot? Colin Kaepernick is far from the first person, far from the first athlete of, of African-American black heritage, right? That we have discredited for taking a stand. And then we move on. We call out, we have a flare out, we call out that one guy and we move on. It's like, well, let's just go back not even that long ago to Muhammad Ali. Or we don't even have to pick an athlete. Let's go back to anybody who is an agitator or irritator. Were they saying the same thing? Did we have the same reaction? It's like we're in a bad play. It's not just not listening. We have to disconnect almost on a molecular level from programming. Where does that programming come from? Who started it? Because it did start from somewhere. It had an origin. And when you figure that out, like you become a little less uncomfortable because you drop some baggage. Yeah, I, I hope that made sense. It makes total sense. I mean, on the other side of it is relief. I mean, that's what I want to impart to others and to myself to remind myself, you know, when things get tough, it's like, but on the other side, it actually feels better. It's the place you actually want to be. It's just hard for a second while you look at that stuff. And the thing is, we can all relate to this behavior that we know is harmful, but we're just used to it. It's just habit, you know, right. and, and you do it over and over and over again until you challenge it. And that, even then, it's not immediate. It's not a light switch. I mean, it's something you have to kind of re, you have to reprogram yourself a little bit to get out of this damaging behavior. And so I've grown up with habits that are unhelpful to myself just in terms of my own personhood and habits that, like you said, Tarek, are throwing boulders down that I don't even know I'm doing. And right. I don't want to believe that because then I have to face that I've done that. Well, there's two kind of key obstacles in play that are both something that I think there's a little bit of internal resistance towards. And that's one, empathy for others, and two, being able to look at yourself and be critical. Those are two things that it seems to be really hard to get people to do and to overcome this problem. You've got to do both. You've got to be able to look at another person of a different race, sexual orientation, religion, and put yourself in their shoes and say, well, what is it like to be them? And then look back at yourself and say, am I doing anything to make this problem worse, either by actively or passively? Right. Well, and that gets back into, I'm fascinated with media, and it gets back into um, what we're encoded with. And people are, to this day, obviously, constantly bombarded with coding that makes sure that you don't look out for not only the other person, but that you always look out for number one. Um, and those philosophies go back, like manifest destiny, the ideal of the shining city, things that I wanted to talk about. Like we can look into just Christianity in origins here in the United States, but there are things that are uh, insidiously, I would even say, put into place to make sure that people don't, they don't question their well, this is probably a good segue to into, you know, because I know you came prepared uh, to I know no, this, much is a, this is a fun organic discussion, but I think we should get into what you came prepared to talk about. Yeah. And we should uh, just uh, up top here, if this is even considered up top anymore, but we're, we're obviously taking a break from our usual format where we focus on an individual person, but also you know, because systemic racism as a whole is kind of a large nebulous concept that covers a lot of history. Tarek, I know you came in with kind of three individuals that I guess you had thought were important to talk about or would help focus our conversation. I guess I'll throw it to you and, and sort of ask, who did you want to discuss and why? Thank you. 
<laughs> Thanks for throwing that to me, Doug. Um, so I have three individuals, yes, if I'm being honest, there's six, but they're the top three that I want to. Uh, the first was Thomas Jefferson, our third president, one of our founding fathers, but also the originator, the, the architect of states' rights. Uh, I wanted to talk about Thomas Jefferson and his relationship with Sally Hemings in France, which led me to Napoleon in France. And I want to talk about Napoleon and his relationship with General Alex Dumas, who was the highest ranking general of any European army of African descent up until Colin Powell. He is the father of Alexander Dumas, who wrote Three Musketeers, Count of Monte Cristo, Man in Iron Mask. All of those stories, all of those myths had factual basis in the exploits that were documented about his father, General Dumas. So uh, he was number Napoleon is number two. And then third, I wanted to talk about J. Edgar Hoover. And all three of these men, the theme that gets into the other three, if we have time, they all, I believe, have this wild, we're talking about myth, and myth is going to be a word dropped a lot, but they all believed in like weird stuff that perpetuated, like, what you know, we talk about dropping boulders, their beliefs, their philosophies, ideas that they 100% believed in dropped boulders on whole populations of people and changed the world, I would not say for the better. And so I wanted to talk about those three men. And then there was like a, if we had time, I wanted to talk a little about Jerry Falwell, Manly P. Hall, and Norman Vincent Peale. Well, if we have to bump those guys, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll make sure that we get them on the next one. But let's, yeah. let's see how it shakes out. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Now, Thomas Jefferson is an interesting one because he's such a mixed bag. You know, you've got a guy who is arguably the architect of so much in the way of human rights and what we're striving for. And yet, as I'm sure you're going to get into, he carries all of that baggage with him on the other side of the coin. Right. He and there's a lot of I mean, a lot of how we feel about Thomas Jefferson in this mixed bag is due to like how we were taught and what we were taught about him and what was focused on about him. And like the thing that I remember, I don't know when the Nick Nolte movie came out where he played Thomas Jefferson. And it was like, it was in that era when like Nick Nolte was, they were, he was this, you know, people's sexiest man. And like, everybody was like, <laughs> I don't remember that era. That was a thing. <laughs> that happens. Wow. It's weird. Right. It's like, these are the things we erase from history. <laughs> right. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled, right? Like it was making you believe Nick Nolte was the sexiest man on the planet. It's how the fuck did that happen? Reggie. Um, um, But yeah, like he did a movie where he was Thomas Jefferson and it was like, I just remember seeing, and I think it was when I was in high school and I remember that being a thing that I was like, I can't stomach this. And only having so a little bit of vocabulary to define why that expanded as I got older. But yeah, for me, it all falls apart when I just focus on Sally Hemings. And she comes into the picture. I believe Sally Thomas Jefferson was married and then widowed. And his widow, whose name now I have to look up, Sally Hemings was her slave. And Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, they took a trip together to France where Thomas Jefferson was there for, I believe, two years. And she was 14, a black woman of of mixed race, uh, biracial. 
but you know, was did not pass. She was not. Uh, she was a very beautiful woman, a young girl by all accounts, but wasn't a black woman who could pass. Everyone knew she was black, even though she was considered very attractive. And when they went to France together, Thomas Jefferson was a widower. He was 44. She was 14. Now, I bring this up because the thing that I didn't learn about until I was much older, uh, until I was in my 30s, I bought a book by Tom Rice, R-E-I-S, that won a Pulitzer in 2013 called The Black Count, The Glory, Revolution, Betrayal, and the Real Count of Monte Cristo. It tells the story of General Alex Dumas, father of Alexander Dumas, this truly, truly real and mythic guy that was erased by history. Now, part of his story, uh, I'll get into Napoleon later, but the thing that I found out about this book was that when France that had abolished slavery well before the United States and North America, anyone, whether you were an escaped slave or you were, they coined them mulattoes at the time, if you were biracial or you were just a French lineage, but black, you were free. So the thing that sickens me about this Thomas Jefferson interlude of two years with Sally Hemings is this is also believed the time when they became romantically involved. She was a free black woman when they were romantically involved, living in France, living in Paris with other black people who were free. General Alexander Dumas being one of the prominent ones. There's also Joseph Boulogne who was called the Black Mozart, who was uh, Marie Antoinette's personal composer. He was also, before he went to music, the greatest swordsman in Europe, and no one could defeat him. And he got bored, and so he went to music. He was like Prince. So imagine <laughs> Prince, right? Imagine um, Prince in like 18th century France, just in all his, all his glory. I just think, if I can for a second, Tarek, I just think of all of the great figures were denied knowing about and celebrating and, and enjoying. And we talk so much about our love of, of heroes and pop culture. I mean, there's all these guys, men and women, that have been erased because they're not white. Right. And it's not, it's by design. To me, like the insidious nature of it, and I'll get into Napoleon, but the talk about insidious nature of Thomas Jefferson of courting, uh, however, it's rape. I, I, I can't put another word on it. This is a 14-year-old girl. Whether she was considered herself in love with Mr. Jefferson or not, this is child rape. She's also property, but she's not property in France. And when he brings her back and she has a bunch of children, presumably by him, there's still debate, but him, this rape is taking place and she's enslaved. And so when you follow that line of Sally Hemings, like to me, it's like follow the money, also follow the love. And you follow that line and Thomas Jefferson, uh, he's known for his words. But anytime he had an interaction with the ideal of black liberation, or even from his own account on the, you can go to uh, Smithsonian's magazine, and they have a whole uh, article about Thomas Jefferson's, him being a slave owner, his own writings. This is what Thomas Jefferson thought about his slaves. Uh, And I'm going to try to quote them. Jefferson wrote, slaves, uh, quote, require a vigor of discipline to make them do reasonable work, unquote. Quote, I love the industry and abhor the severity. So we talk about that mixed bad like you brought up, Doug, but he was also very much a perpetrator of this. And he implied, like he hired a very, this guy, William Page, who was uh, not only just a white overseer, but known for his cruelty to keep his slaves in line. 
Well, think about think about you know, yeah. we were talking uh, a little earlier about the sort of I guess Ellie. In my case, I would like to believe a softer disconnect, a cognitive disconnect between you know what I believe myself to be and behaviors that I do that could be harmful on a racial basis. But just imagine the cognitive disconnect in a guy like Jefferson, who writes these words that become the basis hundreds of years later for a society that is still trying to figure out concepts of. Free, I mean, hope ideally, you know, fulfilling these promises of all men. Uh, all people being created equal, and yet here he is living completely antithetical to that, and yet somehow is able to like put two feet in front of you, the other and like go through life. Right. And um, he's this, he not only did he write the you know arguably the most important sentence in the history of human rights, which is the one you alluded. To, we hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain. It's like. Did you not read what you just wrote? Did you? Not? He wrote a uh, a law when he was in the Virginia legislature before the United States was the United States that was a religious freedom based law that became the underpinnings of what would ultimately be the First Amendment. And you right. use the word cognitive dissonance. Like I don't. There's got to be a stronger word for what this is because it's extraordinary. It's like well, watching good. a guy like who's all like I cured cancer and I'm a child molester. You're gonna have to take both. Right, Jekyll and Hyde. Right. Well, I, it's but I, I think the thing that supersedes like, you, yeah, there is cognitive dissonance, but there's a belief that he had that superseded that justified for him that, you know, was for all intents and purposes a cudgel that like, well, at the end of the day, I'm a white man. Like for Thomas Jefferson, his weird belief is white supremacy. You can find them in his lettered replies to Benjamin Banneker after Benjamin Banneker was like, hey, man, look, I made this clock basically. This inventor, black inventor, trying to prove the fallacy of white supremacy by like talking to a quote unquote enlightened white man at the time. Like, hey, everyone talks about how you are this enlightened, well-traveled man. This can no longer go forth. Let me explain to you. Let me show you what I can do as a representative of black culture. Right. Which is unfortunate. It's not a position any black person should ever be in. So Benjamin Banneker is like strong in his inventions, how he built a clock. And Thomas Jefferson writes back like, I'm not impressed, basically. And like writes a very racist response back. It's just basically like, yeah, great. You can do this. But, you know, you're still black and inferior. I am not <laughs> quoting him. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> wow, that's so modern. The <laughs> Right. Listen, my dude, uh, my Bloody. G, my G, my homie. Uh, but... Thomas Jefferson, who was not officially a Christian, was a theist, held strong beliefs like states rights doesn't come out of nowhere. Him going back to Monticello, I have to use him as a marker if I follow like what happens only a few generations later with the Civil War and the Confederate Army. They are in direct lineage to Thomas Jefferson. And the Confederacy is basically like they kind of codify like, no white supremacy like like it's not really said it's just kind of accepted thomas jefferson is like when you know abolitionists of the time start really being like if we really want to be a free country this is unacceptable and he's like ah ah i don't think so even if i agree with you white supremacy and so like that like the belief in white supremacy i believe it's not he is not the founder of it but he has a very important role in terms of as our third president, as kind of the mythic of the compassionate slave owner. Mm. 
Um, that is a myth that is easily broken, but is not put in our textbooks, is not talked about, it's not shown in our movies. Thomas Jefferson is that guy. Thomas Jefferson is the monster with a smile. He is the monster that is born with all of us. Well, again, um, it's the, you know, the calls coming from inside the house when you look at, you know, this is we, our history books are the country is America looking at its own character, its own soul. So, right. of course, I mean, we should do that, but we're not going to right? at least up until now. We, we don't want to. So you, you only get the story that you get. I certainly never got any of this. Yeah. And to me, and like it's it's insidious because he saw and knew free black people. He lived in France. He saw this with his own eyes and he brought the person that he loved back into bondage. Um, Sally Hemings loved France. That's not talked about. She loved it there. And so there's not a lot from her perspective. But um, so, yeah, I wanted to start with him and just briefly, like, as like to use the term trickle down, it's like, yeah, he's kind of the grandfather of kind of how we see ourselves as Americans. And I use we in the larger context, but like white America, like we are benevolent and manifest destiny, even though Trail of Tears and all these horrible things happened, they needed to happen. But like those are fucked up philosophies and beliefs that killed and murdered too many people to mention. Um, uh, uh, well, yeah. And in the interest, of, I know this is a survey course and we could do the whole episode on this and more. Right. But uh, I guess, is there anything else you wanted to drop? Just I mean, I take your point as him being sort of this pivotal moment and this marker that we use to justify racism in the future. Right. Uh, is there anything else we should say about Jefferson before we kind of leap forward or leap on to Napoleon, I should say? Uh, no, I, I kind of, no, I think that's it. That's, okay. Just uh, in the context of this wanna... particular discussion, but yeah. Right. I think that's it. I wanted to just mention uh, the Smithsonian article. Okay. I'll find out who wrote it. So if you guys want to read more, you can look up I'll this send article. I'll for that. Okay. Yeah, we can put it in the notes. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, he was he was just like Washington was by Henry Weinsheck. These were cruel men that were aware of their cruelty. People were pointing it out at the time. They were not ignorant of what they were doing. That excuse gets used a lot, right? Like a man of his time. It was a simpler yeah. time back then. Yeah, it's... Yeah. None of that stuff is is new or simple. I mean, you think all you had to do was crack open a Bible. They're all so fond of, and hey, there's a whole chapter about a bunch of people that were slaves and you know fought like hell to get out. How right. anyone could pull up that book and then go, well, you know, this actually justifies slavery, is beyond. Well, they do. I mean, well, oh, I know they do. Of, yeah, uh, they use like you know uh, the the Old Testament book of uh, uh, the story of Noah and the flood and Noah's sons and the son of Ham who was supposed to be kind of the progenitor of all of Africa. And, you know, when he's ham is cursed, like this is a real thing that racists believe, but so many slave owners that ham's children were cursed. And like the curse was specifically your children will be enslaved to uh, the children of Shem, who I believe was kind of the father of Europe, right? Like they broke off after the flood. Noah had three children and like, they populated Europe, Shem, and Ham populated Africa. And I forget the third son's name, forgive me, but like the Middle East and Asia. And so this is what slave owners, to not contradict their religious beliefs, they really circled in on that as like a... Yeah, it's interesting you're saying, you know, about these wackadoo beliefs being the basis of all this terrible behavior. I think now about like the QAnon stuff and like just like the level of fantasy that people live in to justify 
supporting Trump, you know, a known racist. We love fantasy here, but we know it's fantasy. <laughs> we do, but it's scary. It's dangerous. It's 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 dangerous, especially when you have when people are, you know, there's so much like this is in our DNA and there's so much in our DNA that's already exploitive. So when you have people who are at their lowest and they need something, something to hold on to, as simple as the concept of like, hey, no matter how poor you are and how broke you are, no how bad you are, you're a white man. Yeah. You're not like that over there. And again, it says, I don't have to. There's nothing wrong with me. And I don't have to empathize with you. Right. Exactly. And I don't have to look at myself. I don't all have to the look horrible at shit in the world is on you. Right. It's a simple it's a simple con. Um, but that leads to Napoleon. And kind of, you know, I, I know uh, we used to talk about Smallville way back in the day, Dan. And <laughs> Don't I, admit I, that publicly. <laughs> <laughs> we did, man. I'm sorry, guys. I'm ashamed of it. This is part of the work. This is part of the work. We talk. <laughs> this is the part of the work I can't do. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I like to think of Napoleon and his relationship, friendship, and then a kind of bitter break with General Alex Dumas. In a Smallville sense, like how Clark and Lex Luthor were friends and kind of came up the ranks together ah. and then become these mortal enemies. However, in this story, the Superman figure is erased from history because Napoleon does become president or emperor of France. And this guy who he was friends with, this six foot Herculean, you know, just handsome and very dark man uh, alex dumas who was famous he was a hero he like these exploits that his son wrote about uh you know there's an account i highly recommend this book i have it in front of me the black count uh, by tom rice and like in the book he talks about an account of like how napoleon sends general dumas to the swiss alps to stop the invasion of italy and there's another general who like writes the whole thing and like they're in the Swiss mountains, they're ill-equipped to fight in the snow. The horses can't get through. And there's like this tiny bridge where the other army, if they get through, that's it. And General Dumas like leads the charge and he shot off his horse. And this other general is like describing General Dumas, like pick his horse up off of him, pull out his saber and then charge towards the narrow opening of this bridge, which is like a bottleneck thing. So the soldiers have to, from the opposing side, can only come in one by one. And this guy just is writing this. He's like, I'm shot. I'm kind of just hanging out watching. And my man, he gets off his horse and he just starts killing dudes one by one. <laughs> this is like the local news in France. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like imagine like uh, someone on the bench of the Lakers talking about LeBron James. It's like, my dude, like, I'm just sitting there. I got a sprained ankle. Um, like, they were going to play me. I was going to get time, but, like, you know, I was hurt. <laughs> but LeBron is just going to the hole. Like, that's how and everyone that would meet or had the, um, I guess, privilege to see General Dumas in action wrote similar things. He was called Black Hercules. He was called Black Devil by opposing armies. And this made Napoleon jealous. And uh, here's an excerpt of um, uh, when they had to fight the Mamelukes in Egypt. Which was kind of like the, they had, they were friends. They fought in Italy together and they respected each other. And Napoleon was rising in power. But Napoleon had a Napoleon complex. 
And it's amazing he didn't see it coming. Yeah, you didn't see it coming. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, when people like would, you know, here's a description that uh, the the writer points out that probably did not make Napoleon happy, but this would like spread around. So the Mamluks in Egypt, among the Muslims, men from every class who were able to catch sight of General Bonaparte were struck by how short and how skinny he was. The one among our generals who apparently struck them even more was the general in chief of the cavalry, Dumas, man of color, and by his figure looking like a centaur when they saw him ride his horse over the trenches going to ransom the prisoners, all of them believed he was the leader of the expedition. And so like excerpts like that from opposing sides were like, yeah, this dude is the leader, not the short one. Really reminds me of a certain American president we might currently have, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> right. He would not last in the administration. No, he would not. And he would definitely not last because here is the other thing about General Dumas. He was a man of letters and he was not a man to hold his tongue. And he wrote many letters. He did not like being assigned to Egypt to fight the Mamluks. He thought it was pointless. And so he wrote these public letters to Napoleon, Mm. to him and his generals, being like, dude, what are you doing? Thinking like they had that kind of relationship. But Napoleon was going crazy on power and demoted him and then eventually Dumas who was stationed in Egypt was like fuck this I'm out I'm not doing this I'm, fu- I'm not fighting this war anymore and took a ship back to ideally go back home to France and he was captured and Napoleon was like good like he let him rot in prison didn't send people to help him his one of his top generals just let this dude because he thought Napoleon at the time was like, yeah, he's questioning my power and people think he's a sexier, taller version, right? They think he's a leader. I can't have that. So you know what? Let him be captured and let him rot in prison. Yeah, he's the 44th uh, to the 45th. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's Barack Obama and Trump. It's it's like, again, like I said, we these things kind of repeat. And like the man in Iron Mask, eventually Dumas gets out of prison. But he's really like he gets sick there. And so he only has like a year or two left before he passes away. Um, and his child, Alex, like Alexander, remembers his father and like, right. And he's like, you know, I'm going to write all these exploits about my dad because Napoleon is all the paintings of him. If they're not removed, they're painted white. All of the every story about him is erased from the books. And so we don't find out about this guy until years later. And still, he's not a known figure. He right. is like the Frenchman. He is the one that inspired all of the here, like, there's probably no Batman or Superman. Like, if we want to make a direct line, I, that's from, a big statement to say that there's no Batman or Superman. <laughs> I don't believe if we want to. We want to make a direct line from like how these, how Three Musketeers, Man in the Iron Mask, I'm sure, like inspired Zorro, like and uh, like Zorro. I see what you know you what I mean? Yeah. Like, if we make from these heroic tales, who are about this black man. Then yeah, like where where are we in terms of media today? Wow, and that's all because cool. Napoleon. It always comes back to black people. <laughs> <laughs> Everything good. God damn it! <laughs> uh, <laughs> for the record, Tarek is shrugging very. Um, He's doing a little cartoon shrug, so it's cool. Uh, no, no, it's interesting. I never, you know, it never occurred to me, but yeah, these stories like the Count of Monte Cristo and the Man in the Iron Mask. He's clearly writing. A, I mean, he's got this theme. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. It's interesting the way you describe him. It's almost as if history doesn't 
Napoleon specifically, but even history in general, like doesn't want to allow this guy to succeed or to be renowned, right? It's kind of being held back. I was reminded as you told that story, it was trying to find the quote, but Einstein uh, said something about you know, after he had repatriated to America and they asked him about his um, European heritage. And he basically said something like, if I succeed, I'll be hailed as a European success story. And if I fail, I'll be condemned as a Jew. Right. It's like there's no there's no way for him to really win in the eyes of a society that sees him as subhuman. Yeah, I feel like I've heard similar stories about European football when these (laughs) athletes do well. All of a sudden they're the sons of whatever country they're from. But otherwise, you know, and then as soon as it's over. Yeah. Super racist all of a sudden. Right. Right. No, it's um, I mean, it's the tale as old as time, unfortunately. Is there anything else that you wanted to focus on in terms of uh, Napoleon that we haven't covered? Uh, no, I, I, I wanted to focus specifically on just on like that small bridge. I highly recommend your listeners like I'm doing like broad swaths, by of the course. way. Yeah. Uh, and paraphrasing. So like, please, if you can read Tom Reese's book, Black Count, it well, gives a much more detailed, much more filled out view of like this relationship. I mean, I want to yeah, read I now just, and I don't read anything. So uh, <laughs> but we'll make sure to put that in the in the notes as well. It should be a movie. This would be a sweeping adventure that has to be brought to screen. But yeah, their relationship, it's really, it's really fascinating. And um, yeah, it's very reminiscent of what we're going through right now. I feel like we will get to that place as a society that we want to be when we no longer feel the need to have this other to stamp down. You know what I mean? And I mean, I'd love for it to be in my lifetime, but I don't expect that. Uh, right. You know, I mean, to really get to a place where we're so able to celebrate somebody's talents and success without feeling like it's a threat to us. Yeah. No. Uh, for me, I I've I joke about this, but I'm I'm very serious when I say I feel there will be. We talk. You talk about relief. Let's talk about relief, right? I think there for black people specifically, there is a like you hear the term black excellence and. I know it's something like I can speak to any person of color, especially those who have to navigate white spaces professionally. There is this drive or feeling that you have to excel. You have to be three times as good. You have to. And I'm sure like women, black women especially feel that anyone who is on the marginalized side, like you talk about Einstein as a Jew feeling that way. Right. Like if I fail, it's going to hurt my people. And my thing is like we are free. And I'm talking about black people specifically right now, but this can go for anybody when we can be mediocre. (laughs) When I can make a black cats and not worry about like black cats on Broadway. It was terrible, but he's getting funding for another one. Like when we can be. That's all you want. You just want the freedom to be mediocre. Mediocre. Like that's, (laughs) it's, it's funny on his face, but like that freedom, the relief to not feel like your individual success or failure paints a whole people. Um, Well, absolutely. I mean, that to me, when I want to very quickly, like elevator pitch for what white privilege is or male privilege or straight privilege or whatever you want to go for, it's that I don't ever have to think about my race, you know, mm -hmm. or my gender or any of that. I mean, the exceptions would be, you know, specifically conversations like we're having now where it's like, that's the subject, but I don't have to think about it. I mean, that's what you're talking about. That's the freedom that you've been denied is the ability to just be a person, to just exist. 
Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You mentioned like gender, for example, and I forget who made this comparison, but with regards to being mediocre, but like when Wonder Woman and I think Captain Marvel did okay, everyone's kind of like, oh, well, maybe we could do more female-run superheroes. And it's like no one thought that like, oh, well, Green Lantern was a piece of shit, so therefore we shouldn't do these male-centered superhero. Like no one thought of it in terms of gender the way women would were being thought of that way right and it's the same thing with minorities like you just said where it's like oh well if black panther had not been the hit that it was then maybe there would have been talk at, a st- at the studios about like well i don't know if we can do another superhero movie with a black lead right no absolutely i mean it was very like this wasn't a private coded conversation like you can go you can go back and look on twitter like they were very open conversations and hashtags about go support black panther if you don't they'll never let us make a movie like this that's partly why it was as successful as it was, like black people going, myself included, again and again and again. Not only because the movie was dope, but <laughs> but like this fear, right? This fear that we won't we get one shot. That's it. And again, I would just say to I don't think we have any skeptical white listeners about this subject, but like just imagine that. A movie comes out and you it's your duty to go see it. Right. I mean, that's a pain. It's um, our duty to see it. But like again, like I say, these are by design. Like it's well, Doug was talking about Black Panther and like the difference between Ryan Reynolds making a shitty Green Lantern movie. But that didn't stop him from making Deadpool. Right. It didn't. Reflect Even was poorly. a shitty Deadpool in a previous movie. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and that well, didn't stop him. That didn't stop him. Like there's no <laughs> stopping Ryan Reynolds. But like, yeah, it doesn't reflect poorly on him individually or on white men but black panther hinged on that movie had a lot more weight to it but i think it's funny that we mentioned black panther the superhero but then like uh you know i wanted to link that with the black panther party i don't know and again i can't stress enough like how weird reality is because neither they both came out around the same time (laughs) they both like stan lee had this idea of black like one didn't supersede the other or they didn't really okay yeah they weren't aware of it's not like the Black Panther superhero inspired party or vice versa. Uh, I think the party proceeds. I may be wrong. Black I Panther, choose to believe that Stan Lee is the father of the Black Panther movement. He is. He has a cameo in the Black Panther movement. <laughs> he has a cameo in it. Uh, he was definitely a black nationalist. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine yeah. that. <laughs> True believers. <laughs> there it is. Excelsior. It's Excelsior, my brothers. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he like Stanley. Like yeah, I don't know which came. To ch- it's a chicken and the egg thing. But um, I think it's funny, like that they both whatever was the zeitgeist at the time that both those the the organization and the superhero came into existence. And to me, that always means like ideas. I see them as real. You know what I mean? Like. Uh, ideas are big. They they last longer than us. Superman is almost more real than you or I. Like, how old is Superman? How vast is he all over the globe? You know right, what I mean? Right, right, right. Uh, well, there is something to, you know, we talk a lot about the different experiences that we have, but also there's the universality of the human experience. Right. So there you go. Like, we're all kind of collectively birthing these ideas sometimes. Yeah. And so we talk about these ideas, but also, know, like, again, on the other side, they have ideas. And so I want to talk about J. Edgar Hoover specifically and his idea that he truly believed and put into a, an official FBI report in the co-intel uh, program, which they used to infiltrate the Black Party. 
Uh, COINTELPRO uh, stood for Counterintelligence Program, I believe. Um, don't quote me. I can look that up. But <laughs> We have a lot of real FBI fans listening to this yeah. podcast, and they're such sticklers for that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it was the program that they created to infiltrate and eventually dismantle and destroy the Black Panther program. Uh, the Black Panther program, which started in the 60s and was seen as the scary black nationalist movement of violent radicals, was really a like, look, it was about police brutality, which brings us to the moment we're in now. Gun laws were instituted in California specifically because of the Black Panther Party. You can watch like uh, some key documentaries. Uh, everybody knows Black Panther, the mixtape movie. But I want to pull out the Black Panther Vanguards of the Revolution, which was filmed which came out like two, three years ago, a documentary with members of the Black Panther Party. And they talk about COINTELPRO. And one of the beliefs that J. Groover had was this belief that he wrote in the program of the Black Messiah and stopping the Black Messiah um, from uniting other Black counterculture movements and other counterculture movements beyond that. Like this, this rising Black Messiah myth, uh, a heroic character like a Martin Luther King, like a Malcolm X, like a Medgar Evers, like a Fred Hampton. Where's he getting this um, from? Is this just his own? Is he getting high on his own supply or is like, where's this coming well, from? I believe and like I can't. Jacob Hoover was, uh, was he a Jehovah's Witness? I believe he was. I don't know. Or Quaker. This stuff um, makes me think of Steve Bannon, you know what I mean? And some of the crazy shit right. that guy believes. Like uh, where this is coming from, it's coming from like the time. But like these these beliefs are I have to do more research on Jager who were these beliefs are tied a lot of the time. So like the reason I wanted to mention three other guys, I will quickly highlight a book that everybody should read that just came out called American Rule by Jared Sexton Yates, um, who uh, if you go if you look at Jared Sexton Yates Twitter feed and I'm just going to pull it up. I have it. Uh, Jared Yates Sexton, I'm so sorry. Uh, if you look at his Twitter feed from March 22nd, he has this very long thread about white identity evangelicals and how he grew up in this world of white identity evangelicals and like the cult of the Shining City. And he highlights step by step how a lot of white identity evangelicals or white evangelicals to this day that he had to break himself from. He had to break himself from this philosophy. So we talk about doing the work. This is a journalist who did the work and he talks about how they are instructed, ingrained, encoded with this belief. That's basically it comes out of the Confederacy. And this is why I wanted to bring them up, because like it all ties like after the Civil War and the Confederacy lost, that philosophy never went anywhere. And when Reconstruction is kind of ended by Andrew Johnson, like their philosophy, like they they took their belief their manifest destiny, their ideal that like they were commanded by God to take this land by any means necessary and to take and like to make it the shining city like that is put into Christianity. It was put into a way before then. It's like how they justified slavery. Like racism is an invention. It's not something that it's not something that's always existed. There's always been prejudice and difference between groups. But like this black, white binary like, peop, that's not how people saw, like, whiteness is an invention. Like, people saw themselves as, I'm, like, I'm a Saxon. I'm a Norman. <laughs> like, that's, right. like, that shit, you know? That's more um, fun. It's more fun. <laughs> no, it, you know, it's funny. Uh, I, I always marvel at how racists think we're all too racist, you know? It's like, yeah, you would think that. 
Because you're racist. You you're know, racist. The, the idea that a multicultural democracy is not possible. I mean, this is a belief on the hard, hard right. You right. Know, it's a, you, you, you can't do it. You can't do it. They can't yeah. even imagine the mindset. No. And but and then they, uh, you know, again, that cultural or the thing that like, I know I'm right, is when you have people who become the leaders and start like just preaching this stuff. It doesn't come out of nowhere. And like J. Edgar Hoover, like I highlight him on the federal level. This is what he was instituting for our law enforcement. He was seeing like you could look at old cartoons from the 40s. Uh, and like G-Men and like Dick Tracy and like Looney Tunes and like, guess who would make an appearance? J. Edgar Hoover and his G-Men. And he consciously made like this. He created the FBI, this agency, and made it like indispensable to the U.S. government. Then you get the CIA and like these agencies that are all just about collecting information and expanding jurisdiction. Like, I can't separate that. With also like acknowledging that like police have their origins in slavery as that's where police come from in large part is policing bodies. They protect property. And when property runs away, are you going to get to get them back? Yeah, this is interesting. This is so I don't I'm not educated on this, but I've heard this before that, you know, the origins of police come from like fugitive slave patrols. Right. right? So Mm -hmm. can you tell me a little bit about that without getting too diverted? Uh, Or is that too much? It's not too much. It's it's, it's my I, I have to just pull from my knowledge. And my, so, yeah, my I know. I'm, here I am. Um, I, I, this is this is the black excellence that you have to uh, demonstrate. Right. You have to be but a repository of knowledge. But it, it's 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 literally as simple as like slave patrols happened. Right. Like, um, yeah, a lot of this country, like from the DNA of the Constitution, the Constitution, those rights, like we hold these truths to be self-evident. That's not for me and you. That's for landowners. Yeah. And so land ownership has always and primarily been like that is what citizenship is. It's why I was three fifths, because I didn't have land. It's why women weren't allowed to vote. They didn't have land. So like he doesn't Thomas Jefferson to him. He's like, what are you talking about? Only people that are real people you can make. You can make this clock out of scratch, Benjamin Banneker. But do you own land? Hmm. I know your black ass don't. So I ain't got to. Listen to anything you say. It seems it's, like such a strange determining quality to me, but I, I think it goes back to you're going all the way back to like Europe and feudalism and lordship and things like that. Mm-hmm. That those kinds of titles and stations were all grounded in who actually owned land, hmm. and Absolutely. we kind of carried some of that with us over the Atlantic. You carried uh, a whole yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Doug. I mean, and it's, yeah, and it's taken us hundreds of years to kind of slowly wipe that part of the equation out not that we're all the way done with it obviously we've made but we've made strides and look how hard we had to fight to get to where we are now yeah and here we are with this real estate mogul <laughs> as president with a real estate mogul as president and we have like i've been out a few of these protests i the other podcasts i do brothers from another planet um one of my brothers on the podcast don hooper when the protest was out he was out there i knew who was out there uh, I was at home that day and then I got we were in text contact because I was worried about him. I was like, yo, let me he lives close by. I was like, let me know what's going on. Then we lost contact with him for like an hour, two hours. And I was worried. And I knew he was this is when the battle in the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, Manhattan Bridge was happening. And then I get a text two hours later. He's like, after I'm like, where are you? What's going on? Do I need to come find you? He's like, I'm limping home. I might need a hug. 
this is not an ordinary text from my brother Don. And I'm like, where are you? And he was, I live by the, you know, the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens. So he was over there. He had found somebody because he got beaten up by the police. He had found somebody to walk him home. And me and my partner, we ran out and we walked him because he lives close by. This was a curfew, by the way. So we're breaking curfew, looking for out for the police. And we find my brother who's limping. And I'd never seen him. He was crying like a child. And that's not in the, the right. Like he was spiritually broken, not because he had been beaten, which he had, but because he saw a woman, a white woman. Uh, no, I think she was black. Uh, I'm so sorry. Uh, police strike her at the knee and knock her unconscious. And he tried to help her and then they beat him. And this was all caught on camera. And I think the New York Times got his footage and I've interviewed him. But I bring this all up to say is that we've been talking about this incessantly. That was a very hard night walking someone, a grown man, a brother, home. I have had two guns pulled on me by the police. I have never, since I was a child, the idea that the police were to protect me was never something that I ever considered. And it wasn't until high school, college, when I truly understand what they were protecting. They were protecting property. All of my interactions with cops were I was on the wrong property. What are you doing here, boy? This ain't your property. And like that's a, that is a statement that my father has, my grandfather has, my mother has. What are you doing here? You don't belong here. Or you don't even have the rights on your own land. You don't have any rights at all. You don't have any land to claim. Like that philosophy is still permeates in the police. And so if you consider that, if you consider the origins of the police, because here's the thing about white supremacy and this police reaction right now that I am obsessed with, why they are still like five black men were hanged by trees that the police deemed suicide this week, hanged on trees, deemed suicide this week, five black men. Here's the thing. The police are scared. They will never say it, but this is a reaction of fear. So I pull out J. Edgar Hoover because he is just the epitome of fear. He is a frightened man. You don't come up with something like the FBI unless you are frightened. There is a boogeyman. There is something that he believes is going to happen. And he wrote it down, the Black Messiah. And so not to say that the FBI killed Martin Luther King, not to say that the FBI killed Malcolm X. Pause. Medgar <laughs> Sorry, Ever, thank you. Pause. I mean, yeah, we can see the face you you're can making. You can see me. I'm, I'm saying, yeah. like, I'm letting the audience fill in those pauses, fill in, like, how these individuals were killed and how they talked about they were followed, how Martin made a very prolific speech right before he was killed, how they all talked about being followed, how they all talked about how they felt like they were being watched constantly because they were and then you get to see the man the handbook we see the manual that J. Edgar Hoover actually drops and I start to disconnect the dots like so I don't know what his particular I saw the movie that Clint Eastwood who I have a lot of problems with made about J. Edgar Hoover which is a very problematic movie not to mention the fact that he wouldn't even embrace J. Edgar Hoover's sexuality oh that seems right? like the whole reason to show up for that movie Right. Like that's the I mean, but it's, it's but it gets into this idea of fear, like and self-hatred. Um, you talk about doing the work and unpacking like sometimes it's really and like the monsters that are in us. Sometimes it's really like the Jekyll and Hyde. It's really hard when those for those two to exist. 
When you're Hyde, hates your Jekyll and vice versa. And to me, Jago Hoover is the epitome of that. We yeah, have again, pictures. I mean, we talked about dichotomy, dissidence, right. shutting yourself off from yourself. Right. And so you blame it on that you come up with a black messiah figure, which is how you get the murder of Fred Hampton, who was in his sleep. You know, they detail it in great detail in uh, Black Panther's the Vanguard of the Revolution. But, you know, his partner was there. She was pregnant with a child. And the police, without warning, just shot with machine guns into his apartment. And they show the bloody pictures of him crawling to his door. Luckily, the baby wasn't shot. Luckily, the mother wasn't shot. But he was. He was only 21. Malcolm, Medgar, Martin, none of them reached 40. Jager Hoover is very influential in the idea of our police force and our FBI and our CIA to this day. He was very influential in Hollywood and the depiction of police and law enforcement to this day. Like we had a whitewash movie about him. So I, I wanted to highlight him specifically for this Black Messiah aspect. I would love it if somebody could reach out to me personally and let me know like, oh yeah, when he grew up, this was his belief. <laughs> Where should they reach you? Uh, you can find me, uh, my email. Um, you want to get your email on the podcast? Actually, no, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> Look at me getting old. Look at me being old. Uh, reach <laughs> me on my, my social medias. What's your big social media for people to reach out to? You can, uh, Twitter and Instagram are the same. I am at Tarek R. Davis, T-A-R-I-K-R-D-A-V-I-S. But yeah, those three men, those three men like had a huge, massive change on the world, like in their beliefs. You know, it's it's interesting. You know, I am looking at all of this stuff unfolding right now, and it's so big. And yet I can't help but look at the mental health side of it because that's been my focus lately. And these three guys you mentioned all have obvious mental issues going on that if they one could presume that if they would face, they would ultimately, you know, be a more complete human being. I mean, you know, we talk about Jefferson and Sally Hemings and he's I mean, he's raping this young girl and and writing about freedom. So he's clearly got some higher aspiration somewhere and yet is not able to live it. And right. then you've got Napoleon with his insecurity, his Napoleon complex and his insecurity and his inability to just have quiet self-confidence. But similar to Jefferson, like believed in fraternity, uh, equality. Liberty. Uh, yeah, liberty, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, yeah. Like he saw himself as Alexander the Great. He saw himself as a liberator of people. There's this angel on your shoulder, isn't there? That's right. whispering to you about living for something better. And so it's right. there. The voice is there, but you have to live it. You have to do the work, as we've been saying. And then you have J. Edgar Hoover here, who's obviously got his own demons that he's trying to wall himself off from. So I just think right. it's so interesting that these three men have such obvious demons. <laughs> that they right. and, and, and because they're not dealing with their shit... It's just spilling out onto other right. people. Well, it's hard to deal with your shit when, like, you have followers, you know, to bring it to now. Like, when people are behind you, like, man, you are, that is, that is the truth, brother, that you are spitting from the mountain. Like, he didn't build the FBI alone. Thomas Jefferson wasn't alone in his, like, in this. Like, they had, they had so many conspirators. They had so many people before them that they were like, this is, oh, I'm I'm completely in line with doing the right thing. Well, these are like the cult leaders that start a cult and they know it's a cult, but then by the end they believe their own. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. It's scary. It's the, it's the thing we have to watch out for. And I'll just say quickly about Jerry Falwell 
Manly P. Hall and how they spread from J. Edgar Hoover. Like, so you have like this on the federal side, but then you have, again, that Confederacy religion, that neo-Confederacy now, uh, like these guys like Jerry Falwell who are taking their beliefs and then like land ownership, state rights. Like we find that in like this um, disbelief of financial prosperity is close to godliness. So you get mega churches. You get this cult of money. Yeah. Almost like it's like, wait, guys, this is a golden cow analogy. And what are we doing? But it comes from Confederacy. And then like it's it's and then that cult, like all cults, they splinter off. Then you get someone like Manly P. Hall, who was in California and had like, uh, you know, he was Reagan's guy. He was Reagan's guy when Reagan was an actor and then became governor. Uh, like he was kind of this new age kind of philosopher, but it was steeped in white supremacy. And so the Shining City stuff comes from him. And he had like thoughts about Atlantis and he was a weird dude. But like Reagan really believed in him. And like that's how he connects with Jerry Falwell. And these beliefs that like seem separate and different, like they're connected. And we get to Trump because we like in that movement as well, in that neo-Confederate movement, we get someone like Norman Vincent Peale, who a lot maybe your listeners would absolutely know. Norman Vincent Peale, who was part of this neo-Confederate founder of positive thinking, really tied in money and with religion and godliness. Guess who uh, he was kind of a spiritual advisor for? Trump. Trump, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He married, he was, he officiated uh, Trump's first wedding and like Trump mentions him often as well, well as reading Mein Kampf. So like you know, these fucked up philosophies beget another fucked up person, beget another fucked up person. And then we get where we are today. And, you know, I think we're reaching the end here. But another thing that jumps out at me is just the quick fix idea. Someone telling you that it's all right. It's so right. much harder to challenge some of these beliefs, to challenge, you know, to do this work, to grow as a human being. We're in a society where if there was a pill or whatever, we'll take it. Right. Yeah. You know, right. and that's what these guys promise you. They promise you that, hey, you know what? What you're doing is totally fine. White supremacy is absolutely cool. You don't have to look at yourself. You don't have to ask any hard questions. And it leads to ruin. I mean, it just, we know that in our hearts, we know this. The easy path, it's the dark side of the force. It leads to ruin. And then Trump, snake oil salesman, you know, all this shit. So that's another yeah. thing that I feel like I'm getting out of this, just like the promise of not having to challenge or question the horrible shit that you're engaged in. Dracula can't see his own reflection, right? Yeah. If he does, he recoils. Like all of these philosophies, they all spring forth on a selfish ideal. But as soon as you look in the mirror, you get to see how old you really are, how foul you are. That's, that's all I wanted to say. I wanted I to say, I mean, But I would just say that, that <laughs> for most of us, you can look past that and see, oh, you know what? I've got some crow's feet. I've got a little bit of gray. Yeah. But... <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> right. Not to be ageist. Yes. <laughs> But I'm distinguished. Right. right. Uh, that would be like if only Dracula had the security enough to do that. But he recoils. But it is. It, it stems from it stems from it, it. These are giant issues. And then they always stem back to human frailty, personal frailty. And yeah. that's why each individual. That's how you can affect change. Do the work on yourself. You know, right. We kind of have two instruments for change. I, we haven't talked about this much on the on the podcast. But what I actually do, Tarek, in my day job is I'm an attorney. Oh, and in fact, I'll leave it disclosed that at sometimes I am called upon to defend 
police officers. Doug, and, I'm and kicking you off this call. Members. Let me just go ahead. I'm sorry, Tarek. Yeah. I didn't realize. I've uh, now I've never had the occasion to work on a case that was involved race. Just luck of the draw. Um, but <laughs> I, you know, in doing that work, the more I've practiced law, and it's been about 15 years now, the more I've become a big believer in our legal system. I think it's a really solidly built, ingenious system. And so you look at it and you go, well, why are we having all these negative outcomes where a large segment of the population says it's a great system, but it doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm. And it comes back to, as like Dan was talking about, human frailty. It's, you know, it's like, yeah, you, you built a fantastic plane, but the pilot is shit, right? And so the system is only going to be as good as the human beings that are actually running it. So sometimes it works great. Like today, the Supreme Court handed down a big victory for LGBTQ LGBTQ rights. Right. um, You can't even say it, can you, Doug? I I just can't get them all out in the right order. Um, But but the point, it was a huge victory because the Supreme Court six to three held that uh, you couldn't discriminate against people on the basis of their sexual orientation, which the right had been trying to push for years. So the system can work. Um, But by the same token, that's not the only tool we have to affect change in our society. Going back to kind of the original, all the way back to Thomas Jefferson, what he does say in the declarations, he talks about the ability of citizens to push for change in their own government. Now it, it turns out because he's, the crappy person we all talked about, it's a cell phone. But the the reality is, you know, people getting out there, marching in the streets, making their voices heard is starting to affect real change. The process is slow and there's problems with it, but it's a good reminder that you have to do the work. Like you said, complacency is the only thing that stops this from getting where it's going. The J. Edgar Hoover's of the world get to sit back and say, I'm already in power. So my job is to fend off threats to that power structure instead of doing what he's supposed to be doing is saying, no, no, we should all have a seat at the table. Right. And that's hard for him to do. And we're experiencing that again with someone like Bill Barr. Right. Um, Who to me is like a, you know, uh, again, like I I believe I truly believe in that. uh, I'm going to screw this phrase up. But like, you know, history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. If there's a rhyming couple, it is definitely J. Hoover and Bill Barr somehow. I'd figure out how to put that in a rap, but, um, (laughs) but yeah, like those two guys seem like that, that, that idea of the aggression, the offense of that's very male um, and steeped in white supremacy. We're dealing with it again. I do optimistically believe a difference now. And I think that difference, you know, I, I try to find a silver lining in everything like this COVID pandemic crisis that we're living in which is very hard, very difficult for me. I think I try to find the silver lining and we were talking, Dan, we were discussing like uh, just the uncertainty of the times. And so for me, I've tried to take solace in two things that I'll try to say very quickly in this. The first, I'm not a religious guy, but I do like to believe that there are things bigger than me. And this whole COVID thing feels like we were all told to go to our room, right? By mother nature, humanity was like, go to your room. The comfort I take in that, if that is the analogy I want to use in something, human, mother nature, the earth was like, go to your room. That's a parent. And if a parent says that, even though they're disciplining you, there's love there, right? Go to your room. Think about what you've done. I love you. I'm not kicking you out of my house. I'm not physically abusing you. I just want you to take time to look at yourself. 
feel like this is our moment as humanity to do that. And the second thing that I have taken solace in, in this moment, seeing all these people, so many people march and knowing that I'm, I've been like, I marched for like Amadou Diallo. Like I remember the LA riots. I remember the Crown Heights riots, which were close to home for me. And that's a drop in the bucket as to like what's been going on with Black America. But to see so many people out there who aren't just Black people, who are fighting and getting hit. Like, that's the thing. Like, these people, these young people know they're putting their lives on the line, not just in front of the police. They know COVID's out here. And they're not going home because there's no home to go to. A lot of people are out of jobs. A lot of people just, the too many straws. And the camel's back has been broken. We've been living under 45 in his foolishness for too long, and people have had it. And so I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I know that there are horrible things happening, like the five black men who have been hung. I know it's hard for me to even say, get that out of my mouth. But on the other end, a tiger gets the most dangerous when he's close to, to death. This could be the death throes of white supremacy. It could be the death throes of this whole messed up system because we know we can't do this anymore. It's literally killing not just me, kills me first, but it kills you guys eventually. And the world is starting to see that. And we got to do something about it or we don't. So that's where I take comfort. in. Uh, I think that's a great note to come to a close on. Um, and I totally agree with you, Tarek. I mean, this is a world that we all benefit from. But anyway, I, I think that's a, a great point. Likewise. Uh, Tarek, you already gave us your, your social media, but uh, is there anything else uh, you want to mention or plug? Um, Brothers from Another Planet, we just dropped another episode today. Um, so you can find that uh, if you just type that in. Um, or you can find that under Lamar McLean, my other brother from Another Planet. Uh, if you look for look for him, uh, you can find all of that information on his page. Uh, other than that, yeah, I'm just out here trying to survive like everybody else and keep making work and keep breathing. Keep breathing. Definitely. Yeah, everybody, please do that. Like literally, uh, well, you and I yeah. have talked about that, Tarek, about the importance of just breathing. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, man. This has been really good for me personally, and I hope good for our listeners. Oh, well, thanks for having me. This has been an absolute pleasure, and it's been lovely to catch up with you, Dan, and it's really awesome to meet you, Doug. Likewise. Uh, really a pleasure to meet you, and, and just a, we're so grateful to have you on for this discussion. Thank you, man. This has been great. And as we always wrap up, uh, gentlemen, to evil. <laughs> Clink. To evil. Clink. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tarek has signed off, but we do have a little bit of admin here. Uh, if you want to get in touch, uh, tweet at us at Podcast But Evil. Um, that's our portal for all things this podcast. And we've got some really cool stuff coming up next. We've recorded a few episodes in advance now, so we can tell you that next week is Cobra Commander. After that is Idi Amin, followed by Shakespeare's Iago. And pretty soon we're recording a podcast on Q from Star Trek. So a lot of really fun stuff coming down the pike. Can't wait to bring that stuff to you. But very, very <laughs> different from what we talked about today. But again, I, I'm really glad we had this. Uh, we took time out for this episode because I think it was, no, it was terrific. And I was really glad that Tarek made the time to join us and came prepared. And it was awesome. And I hope we bring him back soon.
Absolutely. For something where we can make a whole bunch of dick jokes instead of today. So. <laughs> That's really his forte. And actually, yeah. uh, I would say that uh, we have a review that references a character that if we did this character, we should bring Tarek on for. So do you have that text, Doug, or do we need to bring that up? I do. Yeah, no, I, I got it right here. Uh, and again, uh, we really appreciate you leaving us reviews on iTunes, uh, on Apple Podcasts, because that helps us increase our visibility. And uh, again, it's another way to get in touch with us. So just to read this, this is from Masta of Pasta, which is an awesome uh, handle. Uh, it's a short, but it's a notes is fantastic podcast thank you i have a suggestion for a villain yellow flash which i believe is the reverse flash if i know my comics correct yes uh, also known as professor zoom yeah so if we get back into the dc realm we should uh, prioritize reverse flash in honor of yeah. master of pasta and and uh we we really like hearing your suggestions on this because i'm sure we would have gone back for more comic book villains we haven't yet since lex luthor but um this is one i probably wouldn't have thought of uh, on my own uh, i don't know about you dan but it's cool to have you guys giving us things that we wouldn't necessarily uh come to uh, by just brainstorming with the two of us absolutely absolutely and i think within that we would both be learning a lot so something to think about and something to look forward to hopefully soon Right. Uh, and so uh, to repeat our sign off, I guess, depending on how we get it. Oh, who knows? Yeah. yeah. One more time. Gentlemen, to right. evil. To evil. Clink. Clink.